Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, I'm really excited about giving this talk. I gotta tell you just a little background here. Whenever my dad calls me and says, hey, I need you to take uh, a talk in, in whatever series it happens to be, I'm always gung-ho for that. Yeah, I wanna do that, it sounds like fun. But when it's a family series, I'm especially excited. When he called me and said, I got a couple weeks in the uh, Supernatural series I need you to take, it didn't take me but a second to say, I'm on that because I love speaking about the family and about marriage. And the reason for that is kind of what I was talking about earlier when we were taking the offering. I said that I do so much work with distressed marriages and families, and, and I love that. I love, I feel like God has called me to that, and I really enjoy trying to help out those that are going through distress, but there's always gonna be a part of a counselor's heart that goes, why can't we not get out in front of this? Like, if we could just maybe help families and couples ahead of time so they don't have to go into this kind of distress, like, that's a passion of mine. How can we talk about God's plan for marriage and family and actually <clears throat> maybe avoid some of the trouble that our culture is in? And can we agree that our culture is in trouble when it comes to marriage and family? Yes. And I mean, the, the divorce rate is still hovering around 50%. It's a little lower than 50%, but it's really close. And if you think about it, that in and of itself shows us that we don't know how to do this as a culture. We don't know how to do this. I've never, I've never married a couple who is saying to me, Jonathan, we think we'll stay together, but the divorce rate's 50%, so we don't know. We're gonna give it a shot. Like, we're gonna get married, we'll just give it a shot. Everybody who, get, who I marry, they're 100%. No, we're in it for life. They vow to be in it for life. They make a statement. This is it, my person forever. And then the statistics say maybe not so much. So as a culture, and, and can we also agree that at a time when we really don't know what we're doing, we have more information on how to do it than ever before? I mean, I, I talked to, uh, oh, this has been some years ago, but I talked to the lady who represents my writing work, and I said, I think I'm gonna go ahead and do a marriage book at this point, and she said, don't bother. She said, there are so many marriage books out there, the market is saturated. She's like, you, you will not, she said, there, there's no desire for uh, another marriage book right now, and, and it's not likely to change anytime soon. And at first, I was a little offended by that, but then I went to Barnes & Noble, and I, I looked at the bookshelf, and I went on Amazon, and I looked at how many books were in that category, and I really came to the belief that she knows what she's talking about. We have more than ever before, we have so much information out there on how to have a healthy marriage, how to have a healthy family, but can we just all sort of agree that number one, most of us are exhausted with trying to consume information and figure out how to do this, right? And number two, a lot of what we have been consuming isn't working. So I think that's why we, we wanna take these weeks. You know, this is longer than the average New Spring series, and a lot of people have noticed that. Hey, isn't this a little longer than what you normally do? Yes, it is, but it's so important. It's so important that we get a grasp on what God wants us to know about how to have a healthy family life. And the thing about it is, one of the things I always remember when I think about marriage is that God designed marriage to fix a problem, not to create one. 
The Bible says that God saw that it was not good. Actually, this is, this is God speaking. This is a brief moment of self-talk that we have in Genesis that God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll create a helper who is just right for him. And the genders could have easily been switched there. The, the, the role of a spouse is to be a hero, a companion hero. That's what the word helper there could most easily be translated. It means both companion and a hero, somebody who's gonna be there for their spouse and also be there to help them out when they, when they need help. God, God created the family to fix a problem, not to create one. And yet our sin nature, which we've been talking about, we'll talk a little bit more about today, our sin nature has taken what God intended to be a support system and turned it into, in many cases, a, a, a problem. We know from social science research that if we ask people, if we just take a random sample of people and ask them, how many of them think that they have a relatively significant marital problem? The percentage is, is pretty high. I've read a few different studies and they have different numbers, but the one that I read most recently was over 60%. Over 60% of people who are married currently are saying, we have some sort of significant marital problem right now. So if we could get back on God's program, that's what this whole series is about. What if we could get back on God's program? What if we could get back in, in a world that is completely lost as it relates to the family? What if we could find direction in God on how to live in family and in marriage? Wouldn't that be worth it? Wouldn't it be worth it if we could align our spirit with God's spirit and do what God wants us to do? Because we know that God wants functionality for us, amen? God wants us to function. He wants us to function well. So if we can follow what God says, then we will experience God's best. Best. I've said this before in other messages. Sometimes people get really upset because they feel like the Bible is a book of do's and don'ts. And I've heard some preachers get up and say, the Bible's not a book of do's and don'ts. I don't buy that. I think there are plenty of do's and don'ts in the Bible. So I'll, I'll hand you that. I'll hand you that. There's also plenty of do's and don'ts, don'ts in the uh, manual for the new digital camera I just bought. I don't get real mad at Nikon, those tyrants telling me how to operate my camera. No because they know how it was designed and how it should best work. So they're trying to help me by giving me do's and don'ts. For instance, when they say, don't put it in your bathtub and run water over it, they're doing that because they don't want me to ruin my camera. On the other hand, if they didn't give me that input, that would actually be pretty irresponsible. To hand me a camera and not tell me how to use it, that would be irresponsible. Some of us have the idea that God is being a tyrant who's telling us what to do. No, God is being responsible to give us an owner's manual for the life that he's put us in. He wants us to know how it's meant to work. And we've been talking in these weeks about the fact that one of the biggest principles in God's owner's manual is the law of sowing and reaping or the law of planting and harvesting, however you like to say it. But the Bible's telling us there is a way to figure out where you're headed in life. A lot of us feel like it's pretty random. I don't know what's gonna happen in my future, but there actually is a way to manage where you're headed in life and that is the law of sowing and reaping or the laws of planting and harvesting. Now, if you've been with us for the previous weeks, You've heard this all before, but we have had a two-week break. And so I, I, I recognize, first of all, that we may be a little rusty on this. And then there may be some of you, this is your first uh, message that you're here for in this series. So I want to make sure we're all up to speed. So I want to just really quickly review the three laws of sowing and reaping. Um, these are true both in agriculture, but they're also true in our lives, um, the way that our Christian lives work. So the first one is this. The first law of sowing and reaping is that you will always harvest what you plant. You will always harvest what you plant. Last Thursday, I went to the farmer's market 
uh, in the neighborhood where I live. There's a, a farmer's market every Thursday there. And I went to go buy some farm-grown tomatoes. And some of you, you may be new to the faith, but um, homegrown tomatoes are one of the most spiritual, sanctified foods there ever was at any time. Like, now I don't know that it's really printed in scripture, but the spirit, the essence is there. The homegrown tomatoes are very spiritual. So I go to the, the farmer's, now imagine that I go to the farmer's market and I say to them, oh, you know, where's all your tomatoes? And the guy says, you know, Jonathan, it's the weirdest thing. I planted tomatoes, but I grew okra. Now, okra is an evil food. It's as though God said, I need something slimy to feed people. And then okra came up out of the ground, right? So, you know, I, I planted tomatoes, but I grew okra. No, you, you would go, all right, you're, you're, you're kidding me, right? Because we understand this is a law of the universe. If you plant tomatoes, you're going to grow tomatoes. If you plant watermelons, you're going to grow watermelons. Whatever it is that you plant, that's what you're going to harvest. And yet, in life, there are some of us that are expecting a different harvest than what we're currently planting. In marriage, for instance, I talk to people all the time who their marriage is paying the price for the fact that the activities that they've invested in with their kids are, are, are making them so busy they have no time for each other. They have a baseball game in Kansas City and with one kid, and so she goes there. And then they have a volleyball game in Dallas, and so he goes there. And they constantly are all over the place. They never have time for each other, and they tell me they say, when we're empty nesters, then we'll have time to have the marriage we've always dreamed of. What they are expecting is that they will harvest something that they are not planting for right now. They're not planting seeds of connection in their marriage right now. So I promise you, when they are empty nesters, they won't be reaping a harvest of closeness because they haven't been planting for that now. Some of us think, some of us have this idea, once we pay off the debt that we're in, we're gonna be in this new financial place that we can't even imagine. It's gonna be so much better, and yet we are still in the same behaviors that got us in debt in the first place. And we're still planting seeds that are gonna create more and more debt, but in our minds, we're headed for a future where we're gonna pay all that off. Can I just say, in Christian love, we gotta start taking the blinders off our eyes and realize that we are going to harvest what we are planting right now. What we are planting right now is the future that we're headed toward. This is what the scripture says. This is in Galatians 6. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Now that's both good and bad because the Bible says those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the spirit. So it's both good and bad. If I'm planting bad seeds today, that predicts a bad future or a bad harvest. On the other hand, if I'm planting good seeds today, that actually predicts a good harvest. And I may be having a bad day now, but if I'm planting good seeds, I'm headed for a good future. That's a good thing. The Bible talks about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. You see a lot of that if you're reading the Pauline epistles where the apostle Paul writes about this, this constant war that's going on on the inside between the flesh and the spirit. Now, when we talk about the flesh, we're just talking about this body that we live in, which by the way, includes our brain, right? And our brain has something to do with our behavior and our, and, and our actions, right? As a, as a research psychologist, as well as a pastor, I can tell you we know a lot of things that are the normal bent of the brain. We know a lot of things that are human nature, 
And unfortunately, that human nature came to us from our first parent, Adam, who sinned in the garden. And ever since then, the Bible says that the software that God gave us from the factory has now has a virus called the sin nature in it. And it causes us to do things that are opposed to what God wants us to do, or at least maybe it doesn't cause us to do it, but it, it, it tempts us to do it, pushes us toward doing it. And so there is God over here, and there is my flesh that wants to go in the opposite direction. And that is just part of the journey that I'm in, in this world that I'm in. But the thing about it is I also have not just this, this flesh. There is a part of me that is eternal. There is a spirit inside of me, right? So someday I'm gonna die, unless the Lord comes back first, which I would far prefer. I would just assume the Lord come back right now. I would not feel interrupted. I would say, let's do it, right? Um, but someday, other, uh, you know, elsewise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die, right? I see my favorite... I see my favorite funeral home director in the room and they will have to come grab my body and they will take me and get me all ready and they'll put me in a box and put me in this room and everybody will come file by and they'll say, oh, he looks so lifelike. <laughs> they lie, you know. Here, here's the deal. I, I've said this before in messages, but I'll say it again. I fully give you permission. If you're the person behind somebody at my funeral and they say, he looks so lifelike, you have my permission to say, he doesn't look lifelike to me, he looks dead. And I will look down from heaven and say, they listened in that sermon when I prayed. I feel so good about that. <laughs> but you know what? That will just be my body. My spirit will live on because my spirit is eternal. Now, here's what's important. God cares most about my spirit. That's what matters to him. Now, because I'm in the lineage of Adam, as all of us are, and I have that sin nature, my spirit comes from the factory pointed away from God. It is also pointed in the direction that my body wants to go. Now here's the thing that's interesting. One of the arguments against Christianity is that if I do what feels right to me, it's not compatible with what God says. And if it feels right to me, and my senses say it feels right, then it must be right. No, actually, if my senses say that what I'm doing is right, what it means is that I am pointed along with my flesh away from God. So I actually will experience continuity. I will actually experience compatibility. I won't have a battle going on inside because my flesh and my spirit are pointed the same direction. But being a Christian means that I take my spirit and point it toward God. And I say, God, you are right. I'm wrong a lot of the time, but you are right. God, you have the authority to be my boss, and I'm gonna put my life in your hands. Now, what's gonna happen is this body that I live in is still gonna wanna go in that direction, and I'm gonna be in a battle consistently pulling myself around to go in the direction that God has called me to go. And the more I do that, the more I'm gonna experience a good future because when I go in God's direction, I'm gonna experience a good future. When I go in the flesh's direction, I'm gonna have a bad future. I was a mechanic in my early 20s, and I used to do a lot of, alignments, wheel alignments. And people would come in because they would have hit a curb or something. And their steering wheel would be all turned in one direction. And when you drive the car, not only was the steering wheel turned in one direction, but the car wanted to pull that direction. You would consistently have to pull against it on the steering wheel the other way to get it to go straight. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. You will constantly feel the pull. If you don't feel the pull, and if you're not having to course correct, then something's wrong. If you're a Christian, you should notice the pull. If you follow God, you should notice the pull, and you should be having to work to bring it back. And that's one of the things, sometimes Christians will say, I must not be a very good Christian because I constantly feel this battle going on on the inside. Hey, guess what? That means you are doing what God has called you to do. The apostle Paul 
said he had that battle. In Romans 7, he said, I don't, I don't get myself. I don't understand myself. As Christians, I think we get what he's saying. Sometimes we don't understand ourselves. Paul said, the things I know I should do, I find myself not doing, and the things I know I shouldn't do, I find myself doing. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm living the battle. And then he says, I, I'm, I'm such a wretched person, but thank goodness through Jesus Christ, I have a future in God. And that's what the Christian message is. See, people in your world, they, they will say, well, if you're a Christian, why don't you do everything right? If you're a Christian, why don't, why don't you make sure that you're perfect? The, the answer is we can't be perfect. Being a Christian means I am an imperfect person rescued by a perfect savior in a daily battle trying to do what God wants me to do. I'll fail some days, some days I'll be successful, but I'm doing my best to align my spirit toward God. And we've been talking in this series about one of the biggest ways you can align your spirit toward God is to plant seeds in that direction, that we're saying, what does God want from me? I'm gonna plant those seeds. Even if I'm having a bad day today, I'm gonna plant seeds because I know that's gonna take me towards a good harvest. By the way, this works both ways. Not only is it true that who I am today, or excuse me, who I am tomorrow will be a result of the seeds I plant today, but it's also true that who I am today is a result of the seeds that I planted yesterday. Check this out. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, you can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. You get, there's like a lot of emphasis here on you reap what you sow. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people how? By their actions. So who I am today is the product of the seeds that I planted yesterday. That's the first thing. You will harvest what you plant. Second law of sowing and harvesting is you will harvest after you plant. You, you do not harvest simultaneously as you plant. And that's an issue for people like me. I fly by the seat of my pants. My wife is a detail person. She likes to make lists and she likes to think about things before she pulls triggers. I'm more of a trigger puller. I'm like, I'll try it. And then if it doesn't work, I'll always, there's always room to adjust. When we do premarital, we talk about slow personalities and fast personalities. And we're not talking about that as in like slow logically. What we mean is some people make decisions slowly. They're sort of like ready, aim, 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 fire. I have a fast personality. It's ready, fire, aim. Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll adjust. We got time to adjust, but it doesn't work that way when it comes to our spiritual walk with God. You don't have time to adjust. You don't have time to see, is this working out, and then make changes, because we reap after we sow. So I, I need to know. That's why the Bible is so important. Why do we care as Christians so much about God's instructions for our life? Because we cannot simply look at what's working and see if, that, if that's what I'm gonna do. We have to trust God about what the outcome of my behavior is going to be. We have to trust God that, this is, that what God says is the end result of this is true. Because we reap after we sow. I've talked to people who, who tell me, but Jonathan... I feel like if, if what I was doing was wrong, I would feel it. I would feel like it was wrong. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Because the truth is, and this is something, parents, if you'll teach your kids this, it will, ch it will change their life for the better. A lot of things that feel very good in the sowing season do not feel good in the reaping season. 
A lot of things that feel right in the sowing season will not feel right in the reaping season. The Bible says this about Moses. This is in Hebrews eleven twenty-five. 25. Moses, instead of, uh, um, uh, instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, chose to suffer affliction with his people. What season? It says, then to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The sowing season, that's the season. The truth is, the Bible tells us there is a season where sinning, doing things that put us against God's character, feels pretty good. But that's going to change once the harvest comes. And this verse also means that sometimes things that are very difficult in the sowing season are going to feel pretty good in the harvesting season. I talked to a, a clinician the other day who is um, working on getting a medical degree. And talked to, that person was talking about how difficult the clinicals and the, the residency and stuff are. That is what the Bible talks about when it talks about sowing in tears and reaping with shouts of joy. Sometimes it's very difficult. We go through some very tough times in the process of sowing. But there's a harvest coming. Christians ought to lead the way in people who are focused on the harvest and not the sowing season. I'm doing today what I want, I'm, I'm doing today not what I want to do, but what is right to do so that the harvest will be the right harvest. That's what we've been talking about. The Bible says there is a path before each person that seems right at the time. That's the, that's the, the uh, impression that this verse leaves, but it ends in death. I mean, how about credit cards? To me, that's the quintessential Example of this. I go to stores and, and you know, I'm, I might walk into a really nice store at Town East Mall and the salesman will come over, can I help you? And I will always say, I'm just killing time. Now, once I say that, I've just become the person of lowest importance in that salesperson's life. I am now all the way at the bottom on the totem pole. Nobody cares about me. I'm just killing time. On the other hand, I do have some, some credit cards in my wallet that have some available spending balance on them. Most of us do. I could go in there waving my credit card and buy whatever my heart desires, anything that I want. And you know what? The salesman would love me. I would love me. It would be a pretty good day. You know, I buy whatever I want, fill my closet with nice clothes and go to the electronics store, buy myself an 80-inch big screen TV and, and just have a ball with those credit cards. But you know the thing about it is, that is a sowing season that's gonna be fun, but the reaping season is not going to be fun. Because eventually I'm gonna to have to pay for that. You'll reap what you sow, you'll reap after you sow, and then finally, you will harvest more than you sow. It'll be more than it. What a losing proposition it would be financially if a farmer had to plant as much as they plan to harvest. No, we plant a little bit and we expect to harvest a lot. What does that mean? It means if I'm planting seeds of anger in my family, folks, if I'm planting seeds of anger in my family, I may be planting a little bit of anger in my family, but you know what? It's gonna come back is a lot. I may, on the other hand, be planting seeds of peace and long-suffering in my family, and I may be planting a little bit of it, but it's gonna come back as a lot. So I have to realize what I plant seeds of in my family is powerful because I'm gonna get way more than what I'm planting. Bible kind of says, Jesus says this in Matthew 25. He says, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have what? An abundance. There's gonna be an abundance of whatever it is that you're planting now. Now I know where some of you are at. You're like, Jonathan, you're confusing me. This is supposed to be a series on the family. You said at the beginning of the talk, this is gonna be a series about family and marriage and all that. And all I've heard is talking about planting and harvesting. We're talking about planting and harvesting because it is more important in family life than anywhere else. And I'll tell you why. 12 years of marriage coaching, this is what I believe. In a family, you often plant as an individual, but you will harvest as a group. You will harvest as a group. Sir, your wife will have to harvest what you are planting. Ma'am, your husband will have to harvest 
with you what you are planting. Your kids will have to harvest with you what you are planting. That is why this is so important in family life. It's not just me anymore. Wendy will have to harvest things that I have done. Th- seeds that I have planted, good and bad, Wendy will have a part of harvesting in. My kids will have a part of harvesting in what I'm planting. That's why it's so crucial and important that we talk about how powerful it is to, imagine, to, to examine the seeds that we're planting in our life right now. Now, that was an incredibly long introduction. We're gonna be talking this week and next week about a couple of seeds that God has called us to plant in our families and for the sake of our families. And then the week after that, we'll start to talk about some of the things that we we need to be careful not to have, seeds that we need to take out of our bag. But for right now, I wanna take you to Ephesians chapter four, where the Bible says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. As I said, we'll come back to that in a few weeks. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And we're gonna talk today in this message, the brief time that we have left, about the seed of forgiveness, sowing the seed of forgiveness in your family and for the sake of your family. There may be some forgiveness that needs to be sown that is not, you're not forgiving someone in your family, you're forgiving someone outside of your family, but you're doing it for the sake of your family because you know that planting those seeds is gonna reap a positive harvest in the future. But as I start transitioning us to the topic of forgiveness, I also know that there are gonna be some people in the room for whom suddenly a wall comes up because you've been wounded so badly, you've been hurt so badly that you're kind of like, Jonathan, if I'd known today was on forgiveness, I wouldn't have come because I'm just not in that mindset right now. I'm I'm not able to get myself in that headspace. My wife and I lead the divorce care ministry at New Spring. We haven't been divorced, but God has been very gracious to us to let us lead and, and work through that ministry. We have a week where there's a video on forgiveness and we hear that from people who participate. Sometimes they'll come up to us and say, I wouldn't have even shown up to divorce care tonight if I'd known it was gonna be on forgiveness because I'm so not ready to even think about this, to even talk about it. What I wanna ask you to do is bear with me, be a little patient with me, because I wanna show you in the time that we're gonna spend together how most of the reason that most of us sometimes feel blocked from forgiving somebody is because we don't really understand forgiveness. We don't really understand what God wants us to know about forgiveness. I'm hoping that in our time together today, God will open some doors, even if your heart is kind of close to forgiveness right now, God will open some doors to let you feel like once I really understand what God wants me to do in forgiveness, I, I can do this. And then for the group in here who would say, well, this is great, I'm here for a sermon on forgiveness, but I don't have anybody that I need to forgive. Can I just ask you to tick down the list in your mind and make sure you're right about that? Because a lot of us, we sort of, once we have a grudge, we sort of file it away and we push it off to the side and we don't even think about it. But I'm gonna ask you to get real, very honest with yourself as you listen to this talk and make sure there is truly nobody that you need to forgive. My hunch is it just hasn't come to mind yet. When that comes to mind, I'm hoping this talk will be helpful for you. Now, why is forgiveness hard in the family? because it's especially hard in the family. Well, there's two reasons. One is, the closer you get to an imperfect person, the more you need a spirit of forgiveness. The closer, that's a nice way of saying that the closer you get to someone, the more you notice their imperfection, right? We we know from social science research that family stress shot through the roof during COVID. Um, And part of that was because of the pandemic, but actually a big part of it was because everybody was home and they were all getting on each other's nerves. Proximity drives aggravation, right? We get really close. It's like when Wendy comes and inspects a wall that I've painted somewhere in our house. I want her to step back, you know? Just kind of look at it from a distance. 
You ever seen how a professional painter examines a wall? They'll take a big light and they'll go up to the wall and they'll put the light on the wall and they'll rotate it so they can see the beam of that light hitting the wall and they're looking for seams or imperfections or anything that's wrong in that wall and it all shows up at that point, right? That is what marriage does. Marriage is the light that shines on the wall and it shows every seam and every imperfection. Sometimes it brings up imperfections that aren't even there to start with. And we notice those things and suddenly they become a big deal to us. By the way, I do a lot of work now with infidelity. Probably about 70% of my caseload has to do with infidelity of of some sort. And one of the things that I'll hear from people is, well, you know, I, I, I found this person that I went to high school with on Facebook or Insta or whatever the new thing is. I'm old, so I'm on Facebook. Um, that's what they tell me is the Facebook is the old thing. I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know. There's a bunch of new ones, I guess. Uh, but anyway, you, you find this person on social media and they're like, you have no idea how low stress the relationship is with this person that I used to go to high school with, that I'm having an affair with. And my relationship with my spouse is so high stress. Like it just shows me I married the wrong person. No, it shows you you haven't been stuck in a house for 20 years with the other person. Once you're stuck in a house for 20 years with them, you will have a high stress relationship with them because proximity drives aggravation. So that's part of it. That's part of the reason why forgiveness is important in family and why it's also sometimes difficult. But the other part, we talked a little bit about, we talked about how the sin virus infects the way that we come from the factory. So you have to know that forgiveness is not your default setting. Ask a kindergarten teacher, they'll tell you. Kids do not come to their kindergarten class programmed to forgive. You have to kind of walk them through it. And yet God wants us to know in the owner's manual of life, if you wanna have a great family life, forgiveness is gonna have to be one of your go-to tools. Sir, she will need more forgiveness from you than anyone else ever will because you're gonna be around her more. Ma'am, he will need forgiveness more from you than anyone else ever will because he's gonna be around you more. Your kids will need more forgiveness from you than anybody else ever will because you're gonna be around them all the time. Here's what the Bible says about this. In Hebrews, Paul says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out. Now, this is very interesting. This is a a, a warning. You don't have a ton of warnings in scripture. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness, and here bitterness could as easily be unforgiveness, grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. All right, well, let's break that down. What is the Bible telling us about bitterness, about unforgiveness? First off, we know that bitterness grows fast and without help. There's some things like that. Crabgrass grows fast and without help. Wendy and I moved to Wichita. Uh, we first, our first home that we bought here after we moved was in Derby. And we've since moved to another area, but we, we lived in Derby for quite a while. And uh, this little street that we lived on, when we moved there, everybody had a beautiful yard, front yard. You know, fescue, perfectly manicured, the sprinklers coming on multiple times a day, except for our yard that had just been terribly neglected. It wasn't graded correctly, didn't have sprinklers, and it was full of crabgrass. And I learned really quickly that your neighbors sometimes don't love that about your yard. Like, they, they love their yard, they don't love your yard. I mean, I could be wrong, but I truly believe that a few of my neighbors would have preferred we had been drug dealers with a really nice yard <laughs> than to have been nice, regular people with crabgrass. I mean, they would have been like, look, it's a crack house, but look at the lawn. I mean... <laughs> That's pretty awesome. But weeds, you don't have to tend to them. You don't have to work to get them to grow. They just do. They just grow. And unforgiveness is like that. You don't have to tend to unforgiveness. You don't, you don't have to coax it to grow. It will grow by itself, and it will grow quickly. The second thing is, we know the Bible says that when bitterness grows, it destroys. It says a poisonous root of bitterness 
It destroys. What does it destroy? Well, we just heard the kids sing about it earlier. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And by the way, what the Bible means when it says there is no law against these things, you know how we have that saying, you can have too much of a good thing? This is the Bible way of saying you can't have too much of these things. It's like rice cakes. You can have as much as you want, you know? No law against these things. But those are the things that bitterness will spoil. It will spoil your joy. It will spoil your self-control. It will spoil the tenderness in your spirit, the gentility in your spirit. That's why the Bible's saying you have to watch out. Watch out because when this springs up, it will ruin the best part of who you are. It will literally change you from a sweet person to a bitter person. Third thing is when bitterness grows, it spreads. It's contagious. That's why my neighbors didn't love my crabgrass. It wasn't even so much about my yard. Isn't this true? It wasn't so much about my yard. They were worried about how their yard would be impacted by my yard. Parents, I love you in the Lord, and I'm with you because parenting is one of the hardest things you will ever do in your life. But we need to make sure that we're worried about how our kid's yard is affected by our yard. Because bitterness is very contagious and kids will pick it up before anybody else will. That if we get bitter and we start to be unforgiving toward people, our kids, it's contagious. You ever had a pity party? I can't believe they said that to me. What a terrible thing to say. I can't believe that they blah, 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 blah. And we talk in the front seat and guess what's going on in the back seat? Little ears are listening. And we have very fertile soil that is going bitter and we don't even realize it because our yard is impacting their yard. When it grows, it spreads. Now, in the brief time that I have left, I wanna keep a promise I made to you. I promised that for those of you in this room who would say, Jonathan, I can't forgive. There's a barrier there and I can't get past it. I can't get past the barriers to forgiveness with this person. And I promised you that if you understood forgiveness the way God wants you to understand it, you would probably feel like that barrier came down. That is what I'm gonna spend the rest of our time. I just wanna, the, the rest of my time with you is just to talk about what does God want us to know about forgiveness? So with what I've been through, how do I forgive? Here's the first thing. You need to know that forgiveness and restoration are not the same thing. And this is probably the biggest thing where our culture gets lost with the idea of forgiving and forgetting. Or the idea that if I forgive, then we can go right back to how things were before. That's not the biblical picture of forgiveness. Let me show you the biblical picture of forgiveness. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and this is the biblical picture of forgiveness, no longer counting people's sins against them. The biblical picture of forgiveness is much the same thing as what we talk about when we talk about debt forgiveness. It is the tearing up of a bill. It is saying, you don't owe me anymore. I do not expect you to make this up to me. And most of the time, is it not true, church, that most of the time they couldn't make it up to you anyway? There's no way to absolutely fix what happened in the past. So there is a, in a sense, it is tearing up the bill. Yes, tearing up the bill, but not a time machine. Forgiveness is not a time machine. It does not somehow transport us in time back to five days, a week, two weeks before this thing happened, whatever the thing is. It, it is not something that somehow takes us back and makes the thing that happened not happen. That's not what forgiveness is. But if you have the impression that that's what forgiveness is, and a lot of people in our culture do, then you will feel like you can't forgive. You will feel like, I can't forgive because I can't make this not a thing. It is a thing in my life. Hey, forgiveness is not to say what happened is not a thing. It is not a thing I'm going to bill you for. It is not a thing that I'm going to hold over your head and expect you to pay off. That's what it is. 
Forgiveness is about following Jesus' example. Restoration is about making the wise choice going forward. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say that you're driving down the road and I'm driving uh, uh, the, other, the other way and I'm, I'm texting on my phone or something, being very careless, and I T-bone you and you get really injured. You're very wounded from that accident. I come see you in the hospital and I say, I'm so sorry. I was so careless. Can you ever forgive me? And you say, yeah, Jonathan, I forgive you. And then I say, listen, I wanna do something for you. As soon as you get all healed up and you're ready to, to leave the hospital, I want you to call me because I wanna give you a ride home from the hospital. If you're smart, you're gonna go, no, I'll find a ride. <laughs> Driving record hasn't been too good lately, you know? Forgiveness is saying, I don't hold you responsible to fix the accident because you can't fix the accident. But wisdom says, I'm not sure I wanna ride in the car with you right now. See the difference? But some people will convince you, if there's somebody who's harmed you in your life, they will, they will say, if, metaphorically, if you're not willing to let me drive you around in the car, then you haven't truly forgiven me. That is completely bogus. That is not the truth. Forgiveness is setting someone free from the obligation to fix something they can't fix. Restoration is something that we do when it's wise. When it's wise. I wanna talk about two kinds of restoration. Intimacy and favor. Now, intimacy, our culture has made intimacy be about sex. That's not what I'm talking about right now. Intimacy, I'm just talking about the closeness, the level of closeness between two people. That if there is a, a breakage of trust or if someone is harmed in some way, the intimacy is gonna pay a price. I can forgive someone and still have that intimacy. That intimacy is not as close as it used to be. Something happened and it was negative and so there's a disconnect in that relationship. Forgiving doesn't mean we suddenly go right back to where we were before. I can forgive that person and there can still be some distance. That may be necessary. Also, it, it, with favor, favor is, is giving someone something because you think they'll be responsible with it. I may be risking with this person a lot because I think they'll be responsible with my risk, but then they may prove that they were very irresponsible. I may not be ready to risk with them yet. That doesn't mean I can't forgive them. I can forgive them, but I may not be ready to risk. Do you see the, the difference? Ultimately, when we're wounded, we need the wound to become a scar. And I'm familiar with scars. I have a bunch. Um, skin cancer runs in my family, and so doctors, they see spots and they get real uh, aggressive about it, want to take them off. So I've had, over the course of my life, I have tons of spots where they've taken off uh, moles and so forth. And so I was at the Y, I had been here a few years working, and I was at the Y, and I was in the locker room getting ready to leave, and so I had my shirt off, I was changing, and uh, this guy comes up to me just looking really intense, because I have all these scars over my chest and my back, and the guy's looking really intense at me, and he's like, man, how many times did you get shot? You know? <laughs> I really wanted to have a snappy comeback that would be funny, but I didn't have anything at the time. Um, but I know what it's like to have a wound that becomes a scar. That's what happens when someone hurts you. At first, there's a wound, and it needs attention, and it hurts every day, and you go through a lot of pain with it. But eventually, over time, it begins to heal, and eventually, it becomes a scar. But the thing about it is, the scar remains ugly, yes? The scar doesn't, it's not a pretty part of your life. It's an ugly part of your life. It's just not actively painful anymore and it doesn't need daily attention anymore, but it's still an ugly part of your life. I've met people who think that forgiveness means that not only should the person that I wounded immediately heal, but they shouldn't have any scar from it. They should just be like they were before. Folks, that's not real. I may be ready to restore that person when it's a scar, but I cannot restore them when it's still a wound. I can forgive them, but I can't restore at that point. Bible says this, Matthew, 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with, his, uh, with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars he couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. It would have been relatively common in the ancient world. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Please be patient with me, I'll pay it. His creditor wouldn't wait. The creditor here is the person who was just forgiven millions. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I don't know about you. When God speaks to me about what kind of servant I am, I want him to say, you good and faithful servant. So when I see something in the scripture that says, you evil servant, my ears perk up. I want to know what's going on here. You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. This is Jesus speaking. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters. Where? From your heart. That, that'll keep me up at nights. God is saying, I, I, the, the way I know how to interpret this is that God is saying Jesus takes it very seriously. That his forgiveness was so costly, he expects us to do the same. He expects us to forgive. Not to restore, not to risk again, those things are a matter of wisdom, but he does expect us to tear up the bill. If Jesus is willing to tear up our bill, he does expect us to tear up their bill. If I exercise caution, this is a long sentence, but I want to say it right. If I exercise caution in the future with someone based on what they've done in the past, that's not unforgiveness, that's wisdom. What unforgiveness is, is holding someone prisoner in your heart until they find a way to fix the past, and most of the time they can't do it. I've talked before in my years being at New Spring about the church that I served before I came here. I served First Baptist Church of Edmond, Oklahoma, and I worked under Dr. Alan Day, who was the pastor there, and uh, he's gone home to be with the Lord now, but I used to uh, meet him every Monday morning uh, because I was, uh, among other things, I was the television ministry director, and on Mondays, we would shoot what they call the bumps for the broadcast, the intro and the outro for the TV broadcast, and we would talk about different things. I remember one week we were talking about forgiveness, and he said, you know, Jonathan, in the ancient world, prisons were a problem. It's very difficult to keep people in prison because if you imagine what people had in the ancient world at their disposal, they didn't have the advanced locks and uh, fancy metal doors and all the things that we have now. now. Nowadays, you can put someone in prison, you can walk away from them and know they're still gonna be there. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. You put somebody in prison, you better stay there and make sure that they don't come out, right? Somebody had to be there. And, and sometimes there would be a judgment in the ancient world that yes, this person deserves to go to prison, you know, they can, they can go to prison for a year or whatever, but someone from your family is gonna have to stay there and make sure they don't come out because we're not gonna guarantee you anybody else to stay there and make sure they don't come out. Imagine this, so now you've sent the person to prison that did you wrong, but you've also sent yourself or a family member to prison and they have to stay there the whole time to make sure that person doesn't come out. They're in prison, but guess what? So are you now. That's what unforgiveness is. Unforgiveness is having a prison in our heart that we have to stand at the door and say, you can't come out. And we put way more energy into it than we ever think we do. We put that, that I'm gonna stay here, I'm gonna hold this grudge because that's the only way I can keep them in prison. We don't hold grudges because we wanna be petty. We hold grudges because we're trying to hold somebody in a prison that they would otherwise escape from. 
Notice what Jesus said. You need to forgive them from your heart. It means that I'm willing to open up the doors of that prison in my heart and say, I release you. You're free. I'm not gonna hold you responsible to fix something that you can't fix. I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna tear up the bill because that's what God has done for me. Putting up a picture here of two young ladies on the screen. This is Miriam and Eva Moses. This is after they were at Auschwitz. This is sometime after that. But when they were little, they were taken into Auschwitz as part of the Holocaust. And they were separated from their family because they were twins. The Germans were doing what they called medical experiments. They weren't medical experiments. They're nothing really short of, of, of medically excused torture is really what it was. But they, were, they were very interested in twins. There was a very evil doctor who was doing twin studies, quote unquote. I'm, I hate to even call them studies. And so they were experimented on at Auschwitz Terrible things happened to them. Really, I think that Miriam's kidney failure later in life that, was, that led to her death was probably due to experiments that were done on them when they were in Auschwitz. But Eva made headlines some years ago because she decided to do something. She was in a documentary and she was meeting, the documentary had set it up for her to meet one of the people from Auschwitz, one of the Nazis from Auschwitz, one of the remaining live Nazis. And she decided to write a letter of forgiveness to this man. The, the funny thing about that letter of forgiveness is the backlash that she experienced from other Holocaust survivors who felt that she was doing something she had no right to do. To forgive one of their captors and one of the perpetrators was something that she had no right to do. And Eva continued to say for the rest of the years of her life that this was not something she did on other people's behalf. She could only forgive for herself and that's what she was choosing to do. But till the day of her death, she continued to be looked on badly by other survivors who felt that she had done the un, unforgivable and forgiving one of these Nazis. Can I read you what she said about it? This is what Eva said before she died. But what I discovered once I made the decision was that forgiveness is not so much for the perpetrator, but for the victim. I had the power to forgive. No one could give me this power and no one could take it away. That made me feel powerful. It made me feel good to have any power over my life as a survivor. If I had discovered forgiveness sooner, I would have had that 50 years of my life back. Forgive, see the miracle that can happen. How many years of your life could you get back if you made a decision today to let that person out of prison? I'm gonna live my life not holding someone in, but letting them go because God has let me free. I'm gonna let them be free. And I'm gonna get years of my life back. Not for them, not for their sake. Eva says, not for the perpetrator, it's for the victim. I, I may have been victimized by this person, but I'm not gonna be victimized more holding them in prison. I'm gonna let them go and I'm gonna go live my life, which is gonna be the best thing for me. And in the middle of doing that, I will do what God has called me to do, which is to live out Christ's love. So I gotta ask you a hard question. Who is it that you need to let out of prison today? I asked you to go through the list. Who is it that maybe you didn't even think of when this message started that you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm in overtime, but when my dad was preaching and I was a, a, a kid, I was probably eight or nine years old, my dad preached a sermon on this topic, not letting a root of bitterness spring up. Back then we used to have what we call an altar call. At the end of the service, everybody would stand up and they would play some soft music and if people decided that they wanted to get right with God, they would come forward down to the altar. I was used to seeing people come forward to the altar. What I was not used to seeing is that when the invitation for the service happened after my dad was preaching about forgiveness and not letting bitterness take root, I saw men get up from their seat and go to another part of the room and start to make peace with another man in the 
the room. I saw ladies get up and go talk to other ladies and begin to make peace with them. You know why? Because life is too short for us to keep someone in prison. If God has called us to it, it's time for some of us to make some phone calls today. It's time for some of us to pick up a phone and say, I release you. You may not even know I had you in prison. You might be surprised about that. But you know what? I have, and I'm letting you go. Because I don't have any more time to mess around with this. I'm letting you go. And that's what God has called us to do. Let me pray with you really quickly. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you gave us an example of forgiveness. And Father, I pray that in this next moment, you would touch hearts as only you can. It's your thing Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room, you say, Jonathan, as we talk about forgiveness, I think about the fact that I don't think I could be forgiven. I come to New Spring and I hear about a God who loves me and wants to forgive me, but Jonathan, if I sat down with you and told you what I've done, you'd say, not you. But you know what? The Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Anything you've ever done, the power of Jesus' blood is strong enough to wipe that away and give you a chance to start clean with a Savior who loves you. If you would like that, I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer. And if you wanna follow along with me right now, you can settle this in your heart right now. Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I've decided to make you my boss. I'm gonna follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look this way just for a moment, would you? If you just prayed that prayer with me, you just made the biggest decision in your life. And we wanna get you started on the right path in your new walk with God. You can pray, uh, you can text pray to 97,000 or you can just pick up a gift box at any of the info centers. We wanna help you get started with your new journey with Jesus. Thank you so much for being here. Next week we do Jesus Seeds Part 3. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.